Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week it is a win Wednesday. Hot damn, the first win of 2018. Ryan Fitzpatrick, Ryan Tannehill, Case Keenum, and Andy Dalton are combined 8-0. and And this week, I'm picking up all of my body weight and dumping it right on Jared Brown, who joins us this week again, three weeks in a row. Jared, how you doing? Doing well. Thanks so much for having me back, and even better to be here after a win. It is. It's a lot of fun. Uh, and, and how do you like having penalties called on me for picking you up and tackling you in the perfect, most form-fitting uh, way? I have to say that in this case, it is totally fair because that's assault. But on a football field, I have no idea how that becomes the explanation for a flag. It's ridiculous. I mean, Clay Matthews perfectly form-tackled uh, the quarterback, and, and the referee was like, eh, yeah, just, you know defy the laws of physics and remove your body weight from the equation and and go ahead and, and then tackle. And that seems legit. I just don't know where where is the appropriate strike zone. I mean, you know, we've had we had the sort of epidemic of quarterbacks blowing out their lower bodies and so they sort of changed that you can go low anymore. You definitely can't go high. You don't go in the middle with too much force. Like you know, so a, a player like Cam Newton, where would you hit him that would be effective? It's just like it just is such a such a bind that as funny as it is, it's also just ridiculous. You know, I feel bad for Chris Sims because his spleen exploded. And the NFL was like, no, nah, it's cool. You can still hit people in the chest. Uh, it wasn't until another quarterback that was a bit more high value uh, got a little hit in the chest. And they're like, no, 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 no. Let, let's go ahead and not let's not do that. But, you know, Chris Sims' spleen, that's worthy of sacrifice. No big deal. But it is indeed a win Wednesday. Let's get to the things that we think for the game against the Lions. It was a 30-27 to 27 win. Of course, that means this week that uh, I'm 1-1 one one against the spread, and you are 0-2 against the spread, even though we are both 2-0 in predicting wins and losses. And so I think Richard Sherman said it best after the game when he said, we won the game, but it feels like a loss. It really did, because the the excitement of the second half and sort of how they looked, I think that they made what looked to be good adjustments, and then they just sort of fell flat. And, you know, the sort of 49er fandom or experience in my brain, it was looking at it going, after recent years, like, this is a loss. I was expecting this game can only go one way. I know how this one ends. So I'm excited that they pulled that out. I'm impressed by, with sort of the resolve to win. But really, the expectation for this team is different now. And those sort of close, you know, we barely make it wins – don't really cut it anymore. When you play a bad team, you're expected to dominate. Well, I think the first thing that I think about this game that was surprising to me was that man coverage really grounded Garoppolo. The game plan, you know, I think was really, it was sound as usual. It's, it's, it's Kyle Shanahan. You're never going to really complain about the game plan too often. But I was surprised at how much the man coverage affected Garoppolo. How do you beat man coverage? Because I think that's the first place to start when you're looking at what happened with Garoppolo. And, and when you're looking at beating man coverage, you're looking at advantageous matchups. And you're looking at creating advantageous matchups with personnel. You're looking at things like double slants, wide receivers in the backfield. You're looking at pick plays. You're looking at horizontal stretches. And Kyle Shanahan employed all of those things throughout the game. Of course, the last play that was the interception that wasn't the interception was a pick play that was supposed to be run by Dante Pettis. Ultimately, it wasn't. Almost turned into a pick. You had lots of drive routes, that kind of route where the wide receiver is just running underneath, across all the linebackers underneath. You even saw mesh from Kyle Shanahan, which is a Chip Kelly staple, although he doesn't run it quite the same way as Chip Kelly does. The Niners were calling plays that were dialed up to beat the man coverage that the Lions were employing, and yet... They couldn't seem to capitalize often enough to keep their offense on schedule, especially when it mattered in the red zone. Yeah, and like you mentioned, I think the play calling is still effective. It's still obvious that Shanahan is going to get the looks that he wants to get, and the players have to have to excel knowing that this scheme is going to, you know, provided they do their job, really, is going to put them in a position to be successful. Some of the the route concepts that they're running aren't particularly unique. Shanahan does a great job of sort of window dressing and, and running core concepts from different looks to get of what feels to be a lot of variety in some very uh, common stuff. And receivers just have to understand the concepts and understand spacing and timing because their job is actually really minimized in terms of difficulty because of what Shanahan can do. You know, the Lions are pretty grabby throughout the game. 
But the Niners, they, they really have to be able to beat that kind of coverage because teams are going to employ it more and more. This is a copycat league, and, and this is going to be the blueprint for grounding Garoppolo moving forward. This, I think, is the only flaw in the wide receiver core by cohort that Shanahan seems to employ. The the story in the preseason was that the wide receiver core is finally deep, that we have Marquise Goodwin, we've got Pierre Garçon, we've got NFL-quality wide receivers, and Kyle Shanahan likes wide receivers that can separate. But it didn't seem like they could separate all that well against, I would say, not super fantastic Lions cornerbacks. I mean, you have Darius Slay, but he plays free safety uh, unless you're playing nickel. So overall, I think you saw the the injury to Marquise Goodwin affecting the team's ability to be able to separate. You had some great routes from Dante Pettis. You had one where he put a poor defensive back in a spin cycle, but that was the exception and not the rule. And then you add to the fact that Garoppolo was just kind of meh this game, and I think you ended up with a recipe for offensive stall. Absolutely. And you said it well, that teams are going to replicate this because this is a Detroit Lions team that's not particularly good defensively. Does not have a very good inside linebacker duo, not a great defensive backfield, was without their you know stud pass rusher. So you're looking at that defense going, nothing here is really standing out in terms of uh, a you know top-tier talent or ability. And yet, they were, for the most part, effective in critical ways. I mean, obviously, the, the 49ers put up 30 points, and that's, that's above average. That's great. However, there were some times where the Lions did fairly basic stuff that shouldn't have worked as effectively as it did, and yet it did. And so other teams with better talent are going to see those plans or those schemes, the style of play that was effective in shutting down the 49ers, and replicate that week in and week out until these receivers, particularly the young guys, show that they can deal with that or can adjust their style of play to match how a defense might be trying to stop them. You know, I'm curious what you think of Garoppolo's play thus far, because he had a slightly above average game in week one, uh, even though his statistics did not kind of bear that out. His NFL passer rating was not super high. I think it was in the 60s. His passer rating and traditional stats were much better in the game against the Lions, but his overall grade was just kind of below average still. It wasn't super great. And most of it was probably because he didn't have any of those eye-popping throws that you, that you saw where you know he spins around and throws that dime to Pettis in the back of the end zone like he did against the Vikings. Against the Lions, he didn't really make any of those eye-popping throws. He didn't make any like terrible throws or have any picks, but he had that one terrible throw there at the end of the game that should have been an interception, and he was bailed out by a penalty. And while you think, okay, it's because, again, a wide receiver ran the wrong route, Ultimately, Garoppolo has to see that he's running the wrong route, though, and not throw that pass. And if he is going to throw that pass, he's got he's to miss high and to the outside. He cannot miss inside because that's where the defender's leverage is, and that's why it would have been an easy pick six. So uh, kind of on the mental processing side, he didn't really catch what he should have. And then on the execution side, he executed that throw in the worst way possible. And I think that's probably what's driving his grade down overall because he didn't have enough throws in the game to overcome that really, really bad decision. And you have to remember that, yes, he hit wide receivers that were open, and he had some good throws, but hitting open wide receivers in the NFL for a quarterback should be the expectation. This is is not like the, oh my God, he he threw the ball at a wide open guy and finally hit him. That shouldn't be an eye-popping throw. This is the NFL. That should be expected behavior. And so Garoppolo had expected behavior with a really bad throw to end the game, and that's why he ends out as kind of like meh. And and I'm a little bummed because I kind of expected a bit more from Garoppolo. Even though I understand it's 10 games in, it, you know, he still doesn't have a full season under his belt and certainly doesn't even have a half of a season of Shanahan's offense under his belt. I still think I would have expected better. I agree. And not to bring up old baggage, but that throw that was, you know, an interception, not an interception, reminded me an awful lot of Colin Kaepernick, who struggled with something very similar, which was reading the left side of the field post snap and not sort of just assuming what he was going to see, which is what Garoppolo came out. I can't remember if it was Shanahan, but the idea was it was supposed to be sort of a rub route to get that uh, that. Uh, receiver, I think it was Brita, to get him some spacing to make that play. But just because that's the expectation doesn't mean it's always there. Garoppolo threw it regardless, missed inside. And, and we've seen, or we saw rather, Kaepernick throw interceptions that looked awfully similar to that. And that's not to say that they're the same player. However, 
I, the way you described it, I think is is spot on. That I, I quite frankly have expected a little better, regardless of the lack of timing in the in Shanahan's offense and really with this group. Uh, he was hyped to be more fair or not. I have expected him to be a little bit more. And as you mentioned, the routine throws are supposed to be available at all times. That's his job. Shanahan's getting guys open on some of these uh, underneath routes and, and doing a good job of generating spacing. And that's not to rip Garoppolo, but he's doing his job. And with a young team, inexperienced team, a team looking to take the next step, you need the quarterback to be a leader and, and in some cases overcome the play of everybody else. And he's not quite at that level yet. Well, I think if you're looking at the bright side for Garoppolo, you're looking at the fact that his highest grades based on PFF's grading are indeed when he is not under pressure. And we know that, of course, the performance in a clean pocket is indeed what is generally more stable from year to year. So hopefully this is just going up against, one, a really good defense, and two, the Lions is a bit of a bounce back. And then hopefully against the, the future teams, you'll see a bit more of the traditional Garoppolo that we've seen over the last couple of, I guess, after the, at the end of last season. Uh, but what was the, the thing that you saw that jumped out at you that was first in the game? The main thing that jumped out to me, and, and this could be because the end of the game is the most recent thing I've seen, but the youth at some critical positions I felt was on display to close out the game, and not necessarily in a good way. With two young inside linebackers, Elijah Lee and Fred Warner, uh, you know, young cornerback in Akella Witherspoon, and, and some young guys on offense as well, Kittle, Taylor, Bourne, I felt like... This was a game that should have been closed out much earlier than it was. And experienced and good teams finish these games much earlier than the end of the fourth quarter. I felt like the 49ers, if anything, pulled back a little bit. That includes the coaching staff. And the Lions were hanging in a game that I felt like they had no business being in in the first quarter, second, third, or fourth. And I think what it points to is the relative inexperience of everybody that's a part of this organization, quite frankly, from Lynch down. Shanahan's still, you know, a year and a half into his tenure as a head coach. Saul is still a very young defensive coordinator. It's not like he's been, you know, sitting around for two decades in the league before he finally got his chance in terms of like a really high level uh, coach before he made the DC jump. So I think this is really a lesson for everybody, for the coaching staff that they've got a, you know, this expectation of, of the kind of team they want to be throttle people from start to finish don't let up don't slow down and and I'm hoping that Shanahan's now learned this lesson twice once in the Super Bowl with the Falcons and at least now once with the 49ers and at the same time the growth that's happening on the coaching staff with Sala and Shanahan is happening at the same time as their team hopefully provided everybody stays together sort of core of this group stays together maybe it's a good thing that all these guys are taking taking their lumps at the same time I don't know you know, I think when, when I think about the things that really close games out, I think about coverage and the pass rush. And obviously, Akella Witherspoon had uh, not a great day, which I know you're going to get into that in a minute. But when I think about the pass rush, I think that's the thing that is really lacking to, to close out games. When you think of, OK, we know they're going to pass. We know they're down. This is when the defense gets to pin their ears back. And we don't really have anyone to pin their ears back. Not at all. I think Sala is doing his best to leverage a lot of stunts and a lot of twists on the defensive line over the last two games to help generate that pressure. But I don't know that this is the perils of not having an edge rusher. We don't have anyone who is above, really, the, the average line on the edge to help pressure the, the quarterback. And I think this is another symptom of those things where you've got Matt Stafford who performed really well when he wasn't pressured. And, and when he was pressured, that performance dipped. But if we're not able to get that pressure without blitzing or without doing some kind of stunt, then you're at a disadvantage. You absolutely are, and I think this is a team you know, with a, with a good quarterback in Matt Stafford who's willing to hang in the pocket and, and hold on to the ball, has, has a little bit of a cojones in that regard. You saw that they just didn't have the edge pressure that they needed to move him off of his spot too much, and as effective as, as DeForest Buckner appears to be as an interior pass rusher, there needs to be some help, because if he's only collapsing pockets inside out, Cassius Marsh is not going to get it done. Sheldon Day, not routinely going to get it done. Could they be fantastic depth players? Absolutely. And they appear to be. But as you're, you know, down in, down out, hey, this is third down, let's go get them, pass rusher, those, they, they just simply can't be the guys that you're relying on. Yeah, I mean, you look at Cassius Marsh's grade, in which, by the way, that's a fun name to say quickly, Cassius Marsh's. Uh, his name is Cassius Marsh, but possessive, you know, adds an apostrophe and an S. <laughs> uh, his defensive grade in this game against the Lions was 37.8 overall. Not, uh, his, not good. 
No, not good at all. I mean, that's like, that's below, that's poor, man. That's like, that's just not very, very good. 51.2 pass rush grade. He's just not going to be that player that screams around the edge and says, yeah, this is the guy we want chasing after the quarterback. He's just not going to do it. And then you've got Solomon Thomas who played on the outside, but even when he plays outside, he's not a super effective edge rusher. Oftentimes he stunts to the inside, but then ends up beginning becoming that kind of middle muddle rusher. It's not, and then when he does have a great rush, he whiffs on the quarterback. There was, a, there was a play I tweeted out. I think it was a third down play earlier in the game. I think it was in the second quarter where Solomon Thomas is actually rushing from the inside, which is great. That's where he should be rushing the passer. He is able to use, the, use his athleticism to get around the center, or I'm sorry, around the right guard, gets a hit on Stafford, but just kind of falls off of him. And then Stafford completes the pass out into the flat. Elijah Lee gets out there. And he's not able to make the tackle either with two opportunities to make a stop on third down and get the ball back. And instead, it's a first down Lions. And I think eventually they scored on that drive. And that's a little emblematic of the defense at large. And and that's concerning. I think that's tackling, which is a theme that is youth. That's not having Reuben Foster. And that's not being able to kind of follow through on the things that you're supposed to do when you get your hands on the quarterback. And Matthew Stafford is by no means, you know, sort of Cam Newton in terms of uh, body type and athleticism. He's a professional quarterback and he's built, but Solomon Thomas is number three overall pick in the draft, six three, like two eighty. He's built. You got to you got to get the quarterback down. So it's certainly a little alarming. Uh, when they did, Cassius Marsh had a sack late in the game with a face mask penalty that essentially negated a good play. It's just it's just. The, this idea that they're they're close, but they're not getting there, and it's not enough anyways. So something's going to have to give at some point. I don't know if they're going to mix it up. You know, stunts are great, and they are fantastic to generate pressure, but that can't be your go-to move every time because otherwise teams just squat on it, and teams with offensive lines that can communicate are going to have no problem dealing with that, and if anything, they'll exploit the gaps that you inevitably open up in stunting. This is your uh, semi-regular reminder that Solomon Thomas had hands in the 14th percentile for defensive ends, which is not very big. Uh, I, I would love to know who has bigger hands, Trent Taylor or Solomon Thomas. Um, and I don't, I don't know what the answer to that's going to be. Someone who's, you know, six foot, however big he is, six foot one, six foot two, versus someone who's five six. That's, you know, hey, what are you going to do? Uh, Matt Stafford. The, the other thing I think is that Matt Stafford left a lot on the table. This could have been a lot worse. It really could have. This could have been a loss. And and I think Shanahan said it in, in the post, not the postgame presser, but the presser he had today where he said, you never blame one play for the loss. It's an accumulation of things. And I think part of it is that Matt Stafford just didn't execute. Matt Stafford was pressured on 18 of his 56 dropbacks, which is not a super high rate. And when you look at his performance when he was pressured, he only completed 46% of his passes. His yards per attempt were still fairly high, 7.3, but he had no touchdowns, no picks. Uh, when he was, of course, not pressure, that's when he threw all of his touchdowns, had a much higher completion percentage, 71.1%. Pressure affects games. And the Niners were not able to generate any pressure unless they blitzed. When they blitzed, which was just five times, they had their best performance. Only com- Matt Stafford only completed 40% of his passes for 28 yards, 5.6 yards per attempt. Uh, he got the ball out quick. His grade was pretty good. But quite frankly, the Niners had to manufacture pressure because they couldn't get there with their front four which is really, really unfortunate because it's not like the Lions had a really, really good line. I mean, we talked about the Owl brothers last week in the preview, and while you still had Solomon Thomas get a pressure, you had DeForest Buckner get a really quick pressure early on. I would have expected a bit more from the defensive line against this offensive line that had some places to target, but that never, that never materialized. And if Matt Stafford gets a bit more time and he is able to hit some of those wide receivers running down the field in stride— then all of a sudden this is going to be a, another loss, and, and that's, that's worrisome. It's sort of disheartening to see how easily the Jets beat up on the Detroit Lions offensive line. And you know, those, those guys are professionals as well, and the Detroit Lions were, I'm sure, coached up throughout the week, and their offensive line is going to improve. But Frank Ragnow is a rookie, is playing in a second game. The lack of pressure that just the front you know, three, four, on the 49ers could generate three or four, not three, four defense, but the three or four up front, the pressure that they could or really couldn't generate is, is really disheartening to see. And 
as effective as those blitzes are, again, at some point, you've got to be able to just run your kind of base front and get some pressure. I will say, you know, you mentioned when he was blitzed that the comp- completion percentage was the lowest, but Stafford got the ball out, ball out hot and sort of in terms of passer rating or, or PFF grade looked good there. What I will say is that with the return of Reuben Foster, if they do have to blitz and the ball gets out hot, uh, two players over the middle of the field like Reuben Foster and Fred Warner running, I think will tremendously limit yards after the catch, will make some of those hot throws a little more difficult just because of what those two guys can do with their athleticism at linebacker. Uh, and, and Matt Stafford is an advanced veteran quarterback. But against a weak offensive line, I thought that Sala and his crew, um, you know, and even Coach Kiffin up front, would generate much more of a, of a pass rush presence than they did. Yeah, but I think that when it when it comes down to it, Stafford's just not a good quarterback. Like he's not bad by any stretch of of the imagination, right? He's certainly not down there in the uh, the Brian Hoyer kind of Deshaun Kaiser area of of quarterbacking, but he's not great. And and what worries me is when the Niners, if the Niners are gonna be or think to contend for a playoff spot, they're gonna have to be able to go up against good quarterbacks and succeed. And right now, based on their defense, if they were, if Matt Stafford were a better quarterback, this game would have been a loss. Absolutely, Drew Brees is. This is a comfortable win for the Lions. Yeah, interesting. So, give me the last thing that you think from from watching this game against the Lions. The last thing that I think was that the miscommunication and a lack of cohesiveness on the back end in the of the defense is is really what was responsible for some of the coverage issues where you saw players running what appeared to be wide open, both on a couple of the touchdowns as well as the long pass to Golden Tate that sort of the play felt like it was like twenty five seconds itself with you know sort of a uh, NFL follies type feel of of guys all running around and, and just panting by the end of it. But particularly oh man, NFL if, follies, there's something I haven't heard of in a while. I used oh, to watch just, it to go to sleep. Yeah, you know you get the little dun 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 dun. dun <laughs> it felt like that. I was watching it like this is this could be my JV football team as much as I love them somebody better just fall on the the player here please make a tackle in particular uh, there was a couple plays that really stood out to me more so for the body language after the touchdowns one one I want to start with the Akella Witherspoon apparent touchdown uh, on Marvin Jones the Lions had sort of a stacked twins look to the left of their formation and Jones Marvin Jones who's a good receiver he was the inside receiver and he ran sort of a deeper slant it looked like a five-step slant and Witherspoon pulled up as Jones went inside on his slant and from the end zone angle you can see Colbert just over the top of that and it looked like Witherspoon was expecting Colbert to drive down on that slant from what would be sort of the two receiver the inside receiver on that in that uh, formation from the alignment he looked like he expected Colbert to drive down and carry Jones across the field, and Colbert didn't. He took half a just sort of a stutter almost, and then stopped. Jones easily broke across the middle of the field, touchdown, and Witherspoon immediately turned around and kind of threw his hands up like what the heck, um, almost in exasperation. And I think that really highlighted some of the the youth. Some of the the miscommunication, maybe a lack of cohesiveness, a misunderstanding, the lack of real full-time play that these guys have had together that led to a good receiving core, at least, getting open against a young and inexperienced defense at a couple critical spots like inside linebacker and cornerback. The second touchdown was the touchdown to Michael Roberts, the tight end. And he was the only wide receiver, eligible wide receiver on the left side of the formation. He ran, it looked like sort of against a cover two look with uh, Adrian Colbert deep. He ran a a, sort of a deep corner route into the, towards the front pylon of the end zone and the back, the running back, kind of ran a swing flat route. It could be an arrow. But either way, the corner on that side had the underneath, and he jumped the flat route. It was good coverage there. The linebacker, Elijah Lee, jumped the flat as well unnecessarily and instead really should have softened softened his drop a little more into the hook curl zone. As a result, Colbert couldn't get over on top of that corner as fast as he might normally because the ball got out so hot. And ideally, you get that inside linebacker or really the hook curl defender to drop a little more so that the throw from Stafford has to have a little more touch on it, just a half second more of an angle uh, that gets the ball in the air a little longer and Colbert comes over there and makes the tackle. So I think in both cases, continued playing time and really building trust should help some of these issues uh, because it looked like there's some uncertainty about how much they could rely on each other. But boy, good teams are going to exploit it. Yeah, the, the Elijah Lee thing I'm, I'm less worried about only because, well, it's it's Elijah Lee. And there's, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
I guess a a comedy of errors that have ended that ended up in him getting a lot of playing time, including yeah. paying someone twenty three million dollars who's not seen a snap yet. That's Malcolm Smith. He's getting his first full practice of what seems like two years, <laughs> like today. He may never get on the field legitimately. I mean, I no. would not be surprised if he if he plays some special teams and that's it. Crazy. But but I do worry that 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 Salah predicates his defense on being fairly simple initially because it's a cover three defense. The the coverage shell is consistent over and over and over again. It's not super duper complex. We're not talking about playing match quarters or playing cover two or inverting cover two or lots of cover six. These are not things that the the defense is asking the players to do. And yet you're still seeing miscommunications, miscommunications that you didn't really see last year. So I don't know if there's more complexity that has been added this year that the team is having a little bit of trouble doing. I don't think the Lions did anything special with their formation alignment or play calls that would have created more confusion for the for the 49ers. So that has me a little concerned as well, because it's not like the Niners play a super complicated defense that this team is learning for the first time. Yeah, I agree. What is alarming is that the Lions didn't do anything that is terribly intricate. And there are offenses that the 49ers are going to see this year that are going to do much, much more to manipulate their coverage. Just sort of thinking off the top of my head, obviously this next opponent in the Chiefs, but also the Rams are going to do some phenomenal stuff. And if a team that goes fairly basic with some pretty basic uh, routes and formations in the Lions is able to get as much separation and to do as well as they did, particularly down the stretch when you knew what was coming. The Lions were down. You knew they were going to pass. They're in, in, in sort of in areas, the red zone, and in down and distance situations where pass could be expected. And they, with very basic formations and, and play calls, were able to do what they were. Definitely makes me a little uh, apprehensive about what it's going to look like against better teams with better play callers and, and better quarterbacks. Now, I started by saying it's a win Wednesday. You wouldn't think that based on the fact that we've talked about all the things that we're concerned about. But there were lots of things that did that were phenomenal for the 49ers. Of course, when we get to our spotlight player, that will be my favorite 49er. Well, maybe my second favorite 49er because quarterbacks are awesome. Uh, But that's going to be Matt Breida. The cheetah is the rushing leader. He is my spotlight player for this week. He finished with 138 yards on 11 runs, a 12.5 per carry average. He had a 90.6 overall grade, only two 49ers, Joe Perry in 1958 and Frank Gore in 2009, averaged more per carry in a game with a minimum of 10 attempts for the 49ers. And yes, it's just two games, but Matt Breida now leads the NFL in rushing on just 22 attempts. 22 whole attempts is all he's needed to lead the NFL in rushing. And I love that the Niners adjusted in the second half. You alluded to it earlier, but the adjustment to come out running the ball in the second half was peak Shanahan. It was like, fine, you're going to play man coverage. We're going to run the ball down your throat. And, and that's exactly what they did. And the Lions defensive line just could not stay gap sound, didn't know what they were doing. And all of a sudden were gashed over and over and over again for big runs. And it's really what got the Niners back in the game is leaning on the run game. And that's exciting because that's something that they haven't been able to do in the last couple of years. And they said, basically, hey, we can't throw it as effectively as we would like, so let's run it. And they were able to run that to victory. What I loved about Breida's play, and really for the last two weeks, is that, you know, put the the long touchdown run aside, which was an impressive play by him, but also some other players on offense. He just looks so explosive in this offense. And an an explosive run doesn't have to be 66 yards. A 20-yard run is incredibly explosive. And he looks like an ideal back in this sort of one-cut, get-down-hill type scheme. I think it suits him. I think in that hopefully Shanahan sees this as well and is going to continue to feed him a little bit. And more importantly, get him hot early and keep him hot. But it's really impressive what he's been able to do uh, in terms of uh, young in his career with limited snaps last year and now sort of stepping up in the absence of McKinnon showing that he's got a body type and skill set and the willingness to do some of the gritty inside the inside the tackles running uh, with the lateral quickness and burst to get outside when necessary. It's exciting that we get to have this sort of high expectation. I can't remember, even with Carlos Hyde, who was a good back, not great, there was never this, you know, sort of anticipation that any time he touched the ball could be in a, a real explosive play. And with Brita, you feel that. He's got 
even if it doesn't feel like what is breakaway speed. He's got really good vision and, and lateral agility that you look at plays and go, this could easily go for 15, 20 yards and maybe more every time he touches the ball. Generational talent, Matt Breida. I'm, I'm so happy we spent a first-round pick on him. I really am. He, he, he obviously is. If I know anything about the NFL, it's that uh, right now is an exact indication of how his entire career will go. So he's going to lead the league in rushing for the rest of the year. He'll be a 10-year pro for the 49ers. Has to make the Hall of Fame because he's already leading the league in rushing, and it's undeniable. And you can make rhyme, like you can have fun with rhyming his name and his nickname, Brita, Cheetah, Lita. That's Lita with an H. I think all things are, are turning up amazing for Matt Brita this week. Uh, but who's your spotlight player? My spotlight player is Elijah Lee, and he led the league, uh, led the team in tackles, not the league quite yet, led the team in tackles during the game. He recorded 12 tackles overall in week two after just having three in week one. And I think that's more indicative of the Lions game plan. They obviously saw Fred Warner play in week one as well, saw some crazy athleticism, saw a player that's easy to get to, willing to get to the football and does so easily. And so they likely elected to go at Lee. And I thought he did well. He's an admirable backup. He's a good core special teamer, but I don't think he's an NFL starter yet. And that's okay. He's a valuable piece on this roster as the immediate first linebacker off the bench. Like we mentioned earlier, I don't know that Malcolm Smith, even when he is healthy, comes back and supplants Lee. I definitely don't think he's going to supplant Warner or Foster, obviously. So Elijah Lee in two weeks has done a good job of carving a nice role for himself in this in this defense. Not as a high-end starter, not even really as a starter, but as a high-end backup. And that's incredibly valuable over the league. And what's most important is that they have three linebackers in Foster, Lee, and Warner who are all on rookie contracts with low wages and could theoretically build the middle-of-the-field defense for this team for the next three years. So I was impressed with his play uh, when I tempered my expectations when you look at it and go, this guy's a starting linebacker, probably not a great game. But if you go, this guy's probably our depth, harken back to players like Michael Wilhoyt, uh, Nick Ballore, Elijah Lee, a significant upgrade over those guys. Isn't Nick Ballore playing fullback now? He is. And you know what? There might not have been a better position change in the league because he definitely was not it at linebacker. This really was like the the former 49er revenge game. I mean, you had Eli Harrell who got a sack. You had Nick Ballore, who I think was the lead blocker on like a third down run or something at some point. I remember hearing his name and they were like, Nick Ballore with the lead block. And I was like, Nick, is it? I'm so confused. I thought I like someone had slipped me something in my drink at that point. Yeah, that's um, a that's a trigger word for sure. I was I was really confused there for a minute, but I, I think you're absolutely right. Elijah Lee didn't have a, a great game. His overall grade for the game was just 60. Uh, I think 61 or 60. Yeah, 61.4. Not super great, uh, but I think that you know an average linebacker at, that's basically a replacement player. I think hey, you know what? That's not bad. You you could do a hell of a lot worse. Uh, and I think you've identified some folks that are that are indeed worse. What are you doing over there? You're playing washers, like mid-podcast? <laughs> yeah, you know, just dropping stuff all around here, making a, <laughs> making a damn mess. Playing washers, No, no need yeah. to get mad about it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, let's get to the rundown. Let's get to some of the other smaller items uh, through the midweek news and or the game that we thought might be interesting to point out. Uh, and, and first off the top, I think it's going to be a zoom in on one Mr. Mike McGlinchey because he's doing some good things most of the time. He's had some mental errors. He went the wrong way on a third down inside zone play, and that's like the worst. It's it, One of my favorite things, actually, is watching the coaches tape and watching just one guy get the wrong memo on, on his own play where he goes one way and the rest of the line goes the other way. And that's effectively what happened to Mike McGlinchey on a pivotal third down, which kind of sucks. This kind of goes back to some of the mental errors stuff that we were talking about earlier. But he showed some ridiculous athleticism in the run game. He allowed only two hurries against the Lions, he finished with a 75.5 overall grade that was the third highest offensive grade for the 49ers. And if you just took his right tackle snaps, so not the aberration that was his right guard performance in week one, if you just took his right tackle snaps, he'd be the fourth rated tackle in the entire NFL. All the pressures that he allowed in week one were indeed at guard. So I think overall, Mike McGlinchey is a developing player, a promising player. He's got a couple of things he's got to clean up, but he's on the right track. He is, and against the Detroit Lions, this is what you want. You know, again, I mentioned it earlier, but good competition should beat 
should beat up on bad competition, should beat up on a bad team. The Lions without Ziggy Ansah, not really much of a pass rush threat coming his way. So he did a good job to uh, play within the scheme and as much as possible limit hurries. Obviously, you know, the the inside zone, that's kind of a boneheaded thing to do. And I'm sure the nice thing about the coach's film is that when they put that on to show him, not a whole lot of coaching has to happen there. It's sort of like, uh, hey, bud, let's make sure we get the play call right. However... He's going to see better pass rushers, so hopefully he keeps developing. And against weaker competition, this is when you sort of hone in the in the variety to your game. You, you work the tex- techniques you might not normally get. So it's nice to see him perform well against a bad team. Nice to see him with some consistency at right tackle and being able to stay there the whole game, have an entire sort of a nice, real, full game put together. And it's encouraging that... You know, not sort of the, to use a cliche, the sexy pick at offensive tackle. It's nice to see it working out at least early on as a potential developing building block moving forward. Next in the rundown is that the 49ers are continuing to tinker with their run pass option plays with their RPOs. The Niners have run RPOs in consecutive weeks. And if you'll remember, you can always tell it's an RPO by the downfield blockers on the offensive line. That's what gives a an RPO away from just a traditional play action or a predefined pass. The Niners are a little different in that they really rely on pre-snap RPOs. There's two different little types that you can run. One is a post-snap read where after you snap it, you're keying off a second-level defender and, and you're making a pass or run decision. But for Shanahan, a lot of these decisions are made pre-snap. You're counting numbers in the box and you're saying, am I light in the box? If so, run. Am I, you know, kind of not light in the box? In which case, I've got more coverage defenders. Well, then, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna do the the opposite. So, what 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 Shanahan does with with pre snap RPOs is that he's got that decision called early, and in this case, it was there. This was, of course, the play where Jimmy Garoppolo turns his back and then does a little pirouette, spins, and threw high to George Kittle. The plays are there, but uh, they just need to be executed a little better. All right, give me uh, your two rundown stories this week. First one, Akello Witherspoon isn't there quite yet. And I'll hand up. I probably pumped uh, pumped him up a little too much, gassed him up after week one. Didn't play nearly as well as week two, but it's not time to cut him. And I've seen that a little bit on Twitter over the last few days, this idea Which is that ridiculous. It's got to be ridiculous. It really is. And, and not to call out fans, love y'all, and love that we can support the same team. But Oh, I'll call them out. That's ridiculous. Don't do that. That's stupid. It... it, it to me seems so short-sighted in overall development because it's not this sort of linear progression like every week you just take the next step up the stairs. It's dynamic and it moves and it changes and some weeks you ball out and some weeks you aren't good at all and some weeks it has nothing to do with the opponent and for the last two weeks he's faced really good wide receivers and in a few weeks he's probably going to face some slap and the slap will get open on a couple plays and it's really not that big of a deal. Couple things I want to highlight in terms of is, numbers. Is slap like an abbreviation for slapdick? Because I really hope it is. It it is. As a <laughs> as a coach, I have to be careful. So it, it was slap dick, then it moved to the slappies, and now it's just slap when it's one individual. <laughs> the slappies. <laughs> yeah. So the slaps that he will be facing at some point, uh they're gonna they're gonna beat him too. A couple numbers that matter. He's only started eleven games. And in a 16-game season, 11 is less than three quarters. So for a little math here, 12 games is three quarters of an entire NFL season. And he hasn't even played in 12 games. So 75% of a season, he hasn't actually met that yet. So in, in terms of on-field experience, and obviously he's been through two training camps and he's played with Richard Sherman, he hit the summit and all that stuff, he still hasn't played an entire 16 games. And he's faced two pretty solid wide receiving cores the last two weeks. One thing that obviously in terms of numbers points to some regression, at least week to week, was a 27.4 coverage grade, which dropped off tremendously, and that's not good. However, now he gets to bounce back against the Chiefs, and I'm putting a little good juju in the air here in hopes that he will bounce back. The Chiefs are the third straight good receiving, and and I'd say probably the best they've seen over the last three weeks. You know you're going to see a team that's red hot right now, good offensive play caller, I think that Akello, he understands what his role is going to be on defense. And that's not to say don't prepare to be a shutdown corner. Please, by all means, do. But when you're lining up on the opposite side of the field as Richard Sherman, teams aren't stupid. Offensive coordinators aren't stupid. And they're going to attack the two-year player who only has 11 starts to his name. And in in the case of last week, it was only 10 pregame. So 
as long as Witherspoon understands that, and he knows teams are going to come out him early and often, and as long as fans understand that, then this idea that it has to sort of be a clear progression every week is silly. It's unrealistic. And at the same time, it's fair to expect better. Yeah, I think that fans that are calling for Akella Witherspoon to be cut or that he's you know not good and this is going to define him forever, that's incredibly myopic. It's short-sighted. Don't be that guy or gal. You look at even the best corners in the league. You look at Aqib Talib, a player that the Niners wanted to, to trade for when he became available. He had a, a great, a 36.8 coverage grade against the Philadelphia Eagles in Week 9 last year. His first game against the LA Chargers was a 65.8, which is just above average. Overall, though, over the season, he ended up in the high-quality area, had an 81.6 coverage grade on the year. So this this could just be a, a blip in the nonlinear development that is a development for a, a corner. So I think you're absolutely right. I think he is still a player I'm super excited about, and I think he's still going to be a cornerstone for the team moving forward. But all right, talk to me about Mike Person, because I was pretty impressed with that guy too, foot sprain and all. I was, and he is a certified badass, got the coaches attaboy after the game. He had an 87.9 pass protection grade, which is very good. That puts him in the high quality uh, in terms of uh, area, you know, sort of scope range there. And he's he's significantly better. And and maybe, you know, as I'm saying, hey, don't be short-sighted about Akella Witherspoon. Maybe it's a little short-sighted. But after having to watch guys like Jordan Devy and feel like, you know, after... Alex Boone and Mikey Apati, we haven't had a decent guard since what feels like that. To see some decent guard guard play, even if it's just one week, feels good for the fandom and 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 feels good for for the heart. I, you know, the the idea that there may not always be interior pressure feels really nice. And I think what's most impressive is that he said he was going to start. The team doubted it. Fair saying, hey, you know, you got the foot sprain. We're going to hope you're healthy and, and great. We'd love that you want to play. But he came out. Sunday morning, they gave him the test, put him through the gamut, determined he was ready, and he went out there and he balled out through an injury against, again, weak competition, but good competition should beat up weak competition. I think that what it does, it gives a little flexibility at the guard position with Garnett. I think Person really showed that there's no competition here. He's the starter. Garnett makes a very good depth piece. He could also make a trade piece moving forward, so it'll be interesting to see how the 49ers play that. At the same time, as I just mentioned, we've seen bad guard play, and I don't know that you immediately want to trade your decent depth just because you find a a nice starter, given uh, that injuries happen. But how exciting to see Mike Person fight through injury and battle, and then Shanahan recognize it and give him an attaboy after the game. Totally agree. I was really impressed with his play, uh, and he had some good run blocks in there as well, so... Happy that he's a guard, happy that he's with us, and and happy he had a good game. So let's get to the game preview then. It's the 49ers facing the Chiefs at Arrowhead. This is the bet the over game because that's the first thing I'll be looking at because the Chiefs are basically a cheat code on offense. This is really going to be the true test for the 49ers defense, a defense that is okay when it comes to kind of per play efficiency metrics. They're ranked 18th based on defensive DVOA. But their individual grades based on pro football focus, not so great. And, and this this offense from the Chiefs, it's going to test every facet of the 49ers defense. Patrick Mahomes, of course, is the story so far through two weeks. He's got 10 touchdowns, 10 touchdowns. But more impressively, he's yet to put the ball in harm's way. He doesn't have a turnover. And he is the Chiefs' highest graded player this year. He's grading at an elite grade across two weeks. And when your quarterback is playing at an elite level, well, your offense is going to hum. It's going gonna, it's gonna to look as amazing as the Chiefs have done over the last two weeks. His deep passing is completely ridiculous. He's 10 of 17 for 280 yards and four touchdowns on passes that go 16 or more yards past the line of scrimmage. That's absurd. That's like an Alex Smith stat line for one whole game. And he does that just on passes that go 16 or more yards past the line of scrimmage. I think this is going to be one of the first tests for Adrian Colbert, someone who has had, uh, you know, an up and down season so far in in two weeks. But I think that now we're going to see Adrian Colbert's true test because I think his deep middle is going to get tested. I think you're absolutely right. It 100 percent is what's what's most impressive to me about what Mahomes is doing is that he looks so comfortable doing it. Like he looks like these explosive plays are just second nature and what's expected. And Andy Reid's done a really good job of building this offense in a way that suits his talents and what he can do. But 
he is out here delivering, slicing teams up, and it's pretty impressive to see how easily he seems to be able to identify where to go with the ball and put it on guys in a hurry. I think the the thing that worries me is that the Chiefs have a ton of weapons, and they're not going to just attack you in one way. Week one, you had Travis Kelsey, who had like, what, one reception for two yards? And then week two, he ends up with three touchdowns. You've got Tyreek Hill, Kareem Hunt, Sammy Watkins. These are players that are going to attack you both horizontally and vertically. They're going to attack you with jet sweeps, inside runs, outside runs, screen plays, vertical routes. I mean, there's there's any way that they can attack you, they're going to. If they're a boxer, they're going to hit you with, you know, a, a jab and a cross, uppercut, and come back around and hit you with something else that might be a hand. Who the hell knows what it is, right? So this is an offense that's ridiculously scary. And I think the, the hope that the 49ers have is that maybe they can outscore them. Maybe, kind of, because the Chiefs defense is terrible. They have the worst graded defense based on pro football focus, both in overall defense and in coverage. There's only one team that is worse than the 49ers at tackling, and that's the Chiefs. The Niners have missed 26 tackles. The Chiefs have missed 29. Uh, and actually, in terms of tackling grade, there's like maybe three or four. But overall, the Niners are going to want to hang with the Chiefs, and maybe they'll be able to, just like the Steelers almost did. And so overall, if you're a betting person, bet the over, because this game might have a lot of points. Definitely bet the over in this case. I think it's going to be a... a I don't see how this doesn't become a shootout. And what I think is going to be important to watch is how the inside linebackers and safeties of the 49ers are able to move horizontally. Because even Travis Kelsey is incredibly explosive at tight end. So when you get some of these crossing routes and you get Tyreek Hill in space, and not necessarily deep as much as he can go deep, but when they get him working horizontally in space... Those inside linebackers and safeties, not only do they have to sort of deal with coverage responsibilities, but once the ball's out of Mahomes' hands, can they drive downhill laterally with the kind of speed you have to to be able to catch Tyreek Hill? It's going to be really impressive and, and kind of worrisome to see how they, how they handle that. Yeah, so the over-under in this game is 56.5. That seems like uh, a joke. I, I mean, seriously, yeah. the, I could see the Chiefs easily putting up 45 by themselves. Yeah, I could see them putting a, uh, yeah, my question I think after the Lions game was are the Chiefs going to throw up a 50 burger and and I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but you know who's coming back? That's going to be Reuben Foster. I'm excited about that. And in about time and obviously the stuff that he dealt with with the offseason, it's important that he took the time and and did the, you know, did the time as the, as they say. I'm excited and rather in some cases apprehensive about him coming back because this is a you know, as much as you want to have him for the Chiefs, this might not be the best game to have him back. He certainly knows what kind of offense the Chiefs have, and he knows how explosive they can be. And I wonder if he's going to come out with so much excitement and so much exuberance that the Chiefs actually use that to their advantage and put him in sort of conundrums and in, in ways that make him almost be the defender that they manipulate. Yeah, I think Ruben Foster overall is going to be... I I wouldn't be surprised if they tried to go after him and just leverage that, but I think Ruben Foster, if that's something that he's going to succumb to, then you know he wouldn't be an elite linebacker. I think he's going to be just fine in the middle of the field, and I think the there's any number of ways the, Chief can, the Chiefs can attack the 49ers. I think the Niners are going to have to... If we're talking about players coming back, I hope Marquise Goodwin returns because he's, I think, a missing piece that does uncork a bit of the 49ers offense. And, and I think that Jimmy Garoppolo really trusts Marquise Goodwin. I think that's his security blanket, him and George Kittle, apparently. So, so I think overall when, and when I look at what the, the Steelers did, I mean, the Steelers got punched early in the mouth by the chiefs real, real quick, but it wasn't until the second quarter where they started targeting underneath routes to wide receivers in space. And they started going to Juju Smith Schuster on drag routes. And they started running some of those quick hitters underneath that their offense started to get on rhythm and then they were able to get back into the game. And so I think that Ruben Foster is going to be important to come back. But I think Marquise Goodwin, if he can play, is also going to be a really important addition of the 49ers offense, an offense that might have to score 48 points to, to surpass maybe a Chiefs team that scores 45. Absolutely. Both these teams are just going to run mesh and drag routes until one taps out and whoever whoever <laughs> can succumb or, or rather last longer is, is going to win. I'm here for this. Let's do it. I want to see like three different variants of mesh. I want to see the Chip Kelly mesh. I want to see the Shanahan mesh. 
I want let, let's see the Bill Walsh mesh too while we're at it, which I think is more like the Shanahan mesh. Uh, let's do it. Let's just run it over and over. And yeah, over nothing again. but quick hitting rhythm passes and let guys like Marquise Goodwin, Dante Pettis, Tyreek Hill run. And they're gonna. This team is never gonna be on red zone this Sunday because all touchdowns are gonna be like forty five yards. They'll never actually be in the red zone. Everything's just gonna be explosive. So one of the themes I think that we'll probably look at throughout the entire season is, is are the Niners going to get to the quarterback? And, and that's going to be it's going to start by looking at the performance of the offensive line. So talk to me about the Chiefs offensive line and whether or not the Niners can expect to get pressure against good old Pat Mahomes. The Chiefs offensive line is good for starters. Their right tackle Mitch Schwartz is one of the best in the league. So that's going to be a, an area that they probably should expect to lose that matchup, whether it's Cassius Mars. Marsh or, or whoever it may be sort of playing that kind of primary pass rushing role, probably not going to generate any pressure on Mitch Swartz. Their center, Mitch Morse, is very good as well, very athletic, one of the better centers in the league. So if they're going to generate pressure, and they have to, in order to sort of rattle Mahomes and bring him back down to earth a little bit, and in order to get a win, they're going to have to get some pressure on the left guard. And the left guard is Cam Irving, who was originally drafted by the Browns in the first round uh, just a few years ago. And he was traded on August 30th of this year from the Browns to the Chiefs for just a fifth-round pick, which tells you exactly how the Browns felt about him and tells you how the Chiefs felt about their willingness to what they would give up for a former first-round pick in ju- of just a couple of years ago. PFF hasn't graded in the 50s overall, both as a run blocker and a pass protector and sort of a cumulative grade, which is not good at all. And as much as his sort of development looks to be on the upward trend, it's only two games into the season for the Chiefs. So while he looks a little better, his grade this year is still in the 50s. So as some as some people may highlight some of the impressive plays he has made, overall, not particularly good at all. Still not a stud by any means. And I think in order to get pressure on him, because like I mentioned, the center is solid. Their left tackle, Eric Fisher, is a former uh, top overall pick. Saul is going to have to use some of those A-gap stunts and really get a lot of movement sort of from the guard, sort of in the box, guard to guard on either side of Morse and particularly on Irving's side. Irving's side. I think they're going to have to exploit some of the, the overall technical deficiencies that Irving has, which is not particularly, uh, not much power to start, not uh, much of an athlete in terms of, of foot quickness and balance. And a player like Buckner should be salivating at this matchup. Now, at the same time, we said they should do this against the Detroit Lions, and they didn't. If anything, this is the lone matchup on the line that the 49ers can win. No gimmicks, no games. Just attack this dude and generate some pressure, because otherwise they probably don't have a chance. You don't think they can also attack Dr. Duvernay Tardif? And and maybe I asked that question only because I wanted to say Dr. Duvernay Tardif. He, he is both a physician and uh, a right guard for the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, but, I, you know, I think that you're absolutely right. You want to attack Ir- Irving, especially because that's where DeForest Buckner is going to line up. The Niners do like to or and have been moving Buckner around a little bit. They'll move him. They like to do this kind of overload thing that, that Jacksonville does and, and Seattle did when uh, Gus Bradley was in Seattle, where they will take their three technique and move him out over the tackle almost and have and so he's still technically rushing as the interior rusher but he's really outside lined up over the tackle and and they'll run their stunts and they'll kind of loop him around or do whatever they want to do but I think you line him up at three technique and you have him go against Irving over and over and over again Uh, and then you put Solomon Thomas against Duvernay Tardif and have him win over and over and over again it doesn't seem like the team is willing to kind of put Thomas in there full time they seem to think that Armstead on balance is a better overall player at least based on snaps that's what's happening he's getting I think almost double the snaps at this point than Solomon Thomas and but I still think Thomas can be effective as an interior rusher and if the team can just commit to put him putting him there especially against subpar guards I think you can start to get more players that are able to beat their blocks and and stop lining them out in this kind of weird overload thing that that isn't really working I think what seems to be sort of missing the mark in regards to Solomon Thomas and and first off because 
you know, he hasn't played much and hasn't played particularly well over the last two weeks. Obviously, want to recognize that he's still dealing with the family stuff and the trauma of losing his sister. And so let's put that aside and make no assumptions about his play because of that. The team really does need to commit to him, I think, for an entire game's worth of snaps because how he wins is with relentless pursuit. He is not the kind of player that's going to jump on the field and give you like 10 quality, really technically proficient pass rush snaps. He wins by a relentless hustle and by wearing dudes out over a game. And in the fourth quarter, he's going to make two or three plays because uh, someone's had to block him for the entire game and they just don't have the, the sort of relentless hustle and pursuit that he does. When you bring him on and off the field, and he never really gets his motor going, more importantly, doesn't have an opportunity to stress the motor of somebody else for an entire four quarters, then he's not nearly as effective as he really could be. It's not using his skill set terribly well. So I think at some point, they're going to have to commit to give him not just you know three or four here and there, but really almost an entire game's worth of plays going as hard as he can. And this is a good week where his pursuit, his hustle, might not be the one to get the sacks. But if he could just work hard, then there's a very good chance that DeForest Buckner is going to whip the snot out of Cam Irving. Yeah, so overall then, what's your prediction? I think the Vegas line has the Chiefs at minus 6.5, so just about a touchdown. It hasn't reached that magical touchdown number. Uh, But what do you think happens against the Chiefs in Arrowhead uh, for the game where, where you should probably bet the over? In Arrowhead against a hot Chiefs team, hot Pat Mahomes, I think he does regress a little bit. I don't think he's going to have five touchdowns necessarily this game. I expect the Chiefs to try and get their running game going a little bit to establish a little more balance on offense. But I like, not like, but I expect the Chiefs to win. I expect them to cover, and that's okay. They're a good team. Provided the 49ers offense can take a little bit of a leap here and score some points against a bad defense, that would be a nice little consolation prize. But I expect the Chiefs to cover and win. Yeah, I think overall the Chiefs are going to win. I mean, I think that they are just top to bottom a better team right now. But I'm undecided as to whether or not they're going to cover. I really am. I, I could see, you know, I mean, touchdowns a lot. I think touchdowns a lot. I lean cover. I do. Um, but I think, oh, man, I guess, you know, feet to fire. I've got to I've got to choose something here. Um, yeah, I'm going to pick the Chiefs to cover as well. I think they, they probably wouldn't buy a touchdown. We'll, we'll call it that. And then the and then we'll see what happens, man. I mean, and honestly, this is the way we thought the season was going to start to begin with. We knew that the slate was going to be difficult. We knew that, you know, the Chiefs. And the Vikings were going to be really tough games. That the Niners were going to win one in the first three games. It was going to be against Detroit. If they can sneak a game against the Chiefs, um, you know, or who the hell do they play next? Uh, or the Chargers, because the Chargers are snake bitten. Um, you know, I think getting out of this stretch two and two, going up, you know, into a winnable home game against Arizona, they're still on track based on what we thought the season was going to be. So I think there are definitely some concerning things, definitely some great things, but. Overall, this is how we thought the team was going to kind of open up the season. Absolutely. I will say if this line moves up to seven and a half, I'd probably take the 49ers to, yeah, to, cover, I, to cover that spread. But at six and a half right now, you know, a touchdown seems like they come a dime a dozen for the Chiefs. All right. Well, I know that you uh, it's your anniversary dinner, isn't it? Anniversary dinner. Five years with my fiance will be married by this time next year. So the last time to say, hey. We are not married, and we're not sitting home on the couch. I am taking you out to dinner, little lady. Well, let's get you the hell off the air then. Uh, I want you to play It's Our Anniversary by Tony, Tony, Tony the whole way home uh, and just rock up (laughs) with like a a red rose and a smoke machine. I mean, I want like a recreation of like a boys to men video. You know, just talk about water running dry. She'll get the reference uh, and and have fun (laughs) at your dinner. Absolutely. Thank you, man. I've got uh, fresh, fresh, new scented cologne in the truck ready to roll. Oh, man. I really hope it's cool water. Please tell me it's cool water. Either <laughs> oh, that my God. Or, I haven't seen cool water in a long time. Oh, my God. Dude, cool water was the jam in like 1990. And it had the know, textured five. bottle. Oh, man. So just, enough- you felt cool. It's like, oh, this is how, how high class is this? What was the other one that was like, was it Aspen? It was like Forest Green or whatever. And like when you went off the cool water, it was like, oh, now all the cool kids are running or like doing Aspen or whatever. Like, oh, man, the things you remember from high school. Who would have thought? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) All right, man. Well, have fun at your dinner. Uh, Thanks again for joining. Where can they follow you on the Twitters? Follow me on Twitter at Jared Brown underscore. That's J-E-R-O-D Brown underscore. 
Uh, you can always follow me at Better Rivals. And I almost forgot, we're going to do one more thing this week. We are going to crowdsource the drinking game this year. We've got, we do a drinking game every year for the Better Rivals podcast. And this year, I thought, you know what? Let's get some, some fan suggestions because y'all have had some good ones. There are a couple that are kind of the staples, like when the Niners score, you drink. When the Niners get a, a turnover, you drink. Then I think there's probably going to be one about, you know, DeForest Buckner using his, uh, his, chop slap uh, swim move because he uses that all the time and so that'll be a great opportunity to drink but if you have rules for the drinking game tweet them at both jared and myself and over the course of this next week i'm going to put together an official 2018 better rivals drinking game i'll publish it on twitter we'll add it to the podcast notes and it will be there so we can both have fun drink a little bit and make fun of the announcers when they say stupid shit so thanks again for tuning in and as always go niners Hey, I'm Anil Dash, and I'm the host of a new show called Function from the Vox Media Podcast Network and Glitch. This season, we're talking with experts about why our voting machines are so bad and how that might hurt our elections. We'll also talk with an animator to find out how popular dances from the real world end up in video games. And we're going to tackle the biggest question in tech. Why do so many celebrities use screenshots from that Apple Notes app to make their public apologies when they screw up? You can find new episodes of Function every Monday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And thanks to Microsoft Azure for sponsoring Function.